everyone. I'm Rebecca Stuckey. And I'm Shai Shek. And you're listening to FemFM, a feminist radio show centering QT BIPOC Fems on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia. With Pink Triangle Day, Valentine's and Palentine's just around the corner, we got to thinking that the time is right for a lively discussion around love, self-love, palship, new relationships, and self-care. This time of year can be hard. It promotes a kind of normative love that doesn't give a lot of space for complexity. It's our communities, pals, and chosen family that can work together to recreate and reimagine those ideas about romantic and sexual success by giving, sharing, and feeling love in our own multifaceted ways. Pink Triangle Day and Palentine's gives us room to reclaim space beyond state-celebrated relationships, beyond hetero and homonormativity, beyond coupledom, beyond colonial understandings of relationship and gender roles, beyond what we were taught was allowed. For those of you that don't know what Pink Triangle Day is, uh, it's a queer holiday that has taken place on February 14th since 1979. It marks a day where three members of Pink Triangle Press were acquitted for obscenity charges for publishing an article called Men Loving Boys Loving Men. The holiday celebrates more queer definition of relationships. You can celebrate it with your friends, your family, chosen and or biological, and your partner or partners. While Valentine's Day is focused on coupledom, Pink Triangle Day allows us to acknowledge the value and central role that non-sexual relationships play in most of our lives. The holiday also has a special connection to Halifax. Robin Metcalf is a beloved queer activist and Halifax-based curator. He was at the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Rights Coalition meeting that established Pink Triangle Day in 1979. It was Robin's idea to make this an annual celebration. 38 years of queer love later, we are grateful for that. When I talk to my BIPOC family about our love lives, dating adventures, and blunders, a lot of the time we come back to the idea of decolonizing our desires. Why are we attracted to white, masculine, cis men? How do we deconstruct the way we have been taught to see ourselves and others? How is it getting in the way of us having relationships with BIPOC folks? How can we love ourselves when that's the last thing white supremacy wants us to do? In Caleb Luna's powerful piece on being fat, brown, femme, ugly, and unlovable, He touches on a lot of these ideas and questions what it means to decolonize his desires. Here's a wonderful excerpt. Colonization indoctrinates us into a romantic idolization of thinness, whiteness, and masculinity in ourselves and others. How do I, as a fat, brown, femme, decolonize my desires so that I desire myself? How do I love myself in a world that tells me that I am not lovable? How do I decolonize my desires so that I won't ever again compulsively glance at a skinny boy who refuses to see me as the goddess that I am? Caleb is not alone in this journey of unlearning the self-hate inflicted upon marginalized bodies, navigating a heteronormative world where white supremacy is prevalent in so many facets of life, romance included. How do we move past our colonial understandings of relationships? Caleb proposes some great ideas that make us think outside of what we normally see represented within the colonial construct of love. Here's another excerpt that speaks to this. Were we to sustain ourselves on self-love, platonic love, and love of community, what would change? We could see the beauty of our interdependence rather than individuals competing for higher wages and standards of living at the expense of each other. With a restructuring of romantic love as comparable to community, platonic, self-love, we begin to prioritize the care and livelihood of entire larger groups of people as equally important to our romantic partners. 
We don't have the answers, but we have a lot of questions and would love to figure it out with you. It's only as a community that we can reimagine and build this sustaining and supportive love that can make us stronger and more resilient. With this in mind, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach us at femfmhlfx at gmail.com. We ask friends and strangers alike to submit stories, screen caps, odes, rants, and confessions about love in all of its strange, annoying, gross, and beautiful complexities. Throughout our show today, you'll hear stories from lovely people from across Halifax and across the country. Instagram boy. Hey, so this is extremely random, haha, but I just saw you on Tinder and recognized you from the airport the other day. We were on the same flight. At the time, I thought you were absolutely stunning and thought about how I should have said hi the first time I saw you. After seeing you on Tinder, I couldn't let a second opportunity pass. So, hi. Tinder boy. I think we should have kids. Facebook boy. Hey, you're really cute. Do you want to hook up? Me? No. Him? Excuse that message. Have a good night. 40-year-old man from my job. Yep, I must be a little stoned. I went to shoppers. As the girl handed me my chain, she said, have a good night. And I said, all right, like Matthew McConaughey. Boy from the summer. I should probably remind you that we aren't dating. You're free to do whatever you want. I don't have any problem with that. If you're not interested in hanging out with me anymore, it's okay. I would just like to get my sweater back from you if that's cool. By the way, in case you were curious, but I'm sure you already knew, you're the only girl that I've been seeing that I actually looked forward to seeing and considered dating. Even took things slow enough to not sleep together on the first day. Another boy. I am the endless open space of the void. You are a rocky planet to void of life silently floating through me. Instagram boy. You aboriginal? Instagram boy. Why are you this beautiful? Instagram boy. I follow you on Tumblr. Thought I requested you before on here, but if I did and you declined my request, feel free to decline it again. Boy on Instagram. Threesome? Boy on Instagram? Who sent me a photo of himself? Hey! Monkey emoji, monkey emoji. LOL. Sorry, I was trying to use flash, but it turned out bad. <laughs> crying, <laughs> crying emoji and hearts. But anyway, your love story is about a dog. The dog that taught me everything about queering family. Uh, the dog that showed me the path towards healing in this life, and when the time comes, how to die with some fierce tenderness. So, I adopted Cedar from a Toronto SPCA when I was volunteering there about six years ago. She was a two-year-old Husky Shepherd mix whose presence could best be described as somewhere between regal calm and curmudgeonly self-assurance. She was relaxed, had amazing boundaries, and didn't seem concerned with her surroundings or the dozens of other howling, stressed-out dogs. She was really calm. She knew that she would be adopted. And this confidence made me laugh because it was just so gay. Every day I would return to brush her hair and walk her. I doted on her and she relished the attention. But the funny thing about us is that neither of us would really outright admit our smittenness. It wasn't really our style. We just sort of developed a mutually beneficial pace that would carry us through the next five years of our lives. I renamed her Cedar, and we were on our merry way. Cedar lived with me in several apartments, most of which were quiet spinster pads filled with books, tapes, and Star Trek collectibles. She was ridiculously respectful for a rescue dog. She never needed an ounce of training. 
She kept things calm and clean and warm. It was a perfect fit for my traumatized neurotic space needs. And as a worker and community organizer who often spent upwards of 50 to 60 hours a week talking about issues like sexual assault, transphobia, and systemic violence, Cedar became my unofficial therapy dog. I would often bring Cedar with me to meetings that I was feeling particularly anxious about, and her presence would really calm me down. She also had a way of working a room. It never took more than five minutes before she was belly up, playing somebody like a fiddle for attention, basically. We spent five years in our little routine of walks. Uh, You know, we'd go to the coffee shop, we'd watch Netflix, we'd take hikes by the ocean, we would attend protests, the quieter ones, so as not to stress her out. And the occasional trip to the dog salon for a little primping, which she hated, bless her tomboy queen heart. When Cedar got sick and I realized that she wouldn't have the lifespan that I had hoped, I settled into the reality that every day spent with her was not to be taken for granted. I took out credit cards to cover her bills. I commissioned the skills of artist friends to capture her sweetness. We went to the hipster butcher and worked the whole dying story in pursuit of free charcuterie meats, which she never got in my vegan kitchen. And it always worked. And when it was time to die, we did it together, and we were both very brave. I held her throughout the whole thing, and I handled her sweet body up until the cremation. Her urn is beautiful, and I carry it everywhere. Her vet was also amazing. He cried the whole time and sent me several cards. My dog had a good life. When it came time to let my friends know of this huge loss, I wrote these words in a Facebook post. My heart is not broken, it is being used to its full capacity. That is what dogs teach you how to do. It's been two years since I lost my friend, and I think about her every day. She is still the thought that grounds me, and whenever I begin to sink into that dark abyss of despair, I hear the sound of her little claws hitting the ground inside my apartment as I turn the key into the door when I was getting home from work. I picture her running after her favorite ball at her favorite park, I see her stack of handkerchiefs folded inside a bag by the door because dog sweaters or anything of the like were pedestrian embarrassments she would never permit, but a jaunty scarf made just the right statement. She still keeps me in the moment and reminds me to go for a damn walk. So, Cedar was the love of my life, my palantine, and my partner today, a fellow dog widower, knows it. Together we hold the ghosts of our dogs close and summon their memory often. Recently, we have adopted a new dog together, and I named her Forest, hoping that she would come from the same magical place that my cedar did. About a year Happy ago, I started dating a boy, and like all things Halifax, he coincidentally lived on my street, so things escalated pretty fast. On our third date, though, he casually dropped that he had applied for a doctor program in New Zealand, which came as news to me, and two months into our relationship, he got accepted. So this is about mid-April, and his program was set to start in September, so already off the bat, this relationship was precedented with a termination or an end goal. So the whole summer, I spent debating what I was going to do. Was I going to pick up and move to New Zealand? I was two-thirds of the way through a degree at Dalhousie, Um, admittedly had hit kind of a stagnant point where I wasn't very happy, and seasonal depression was taking over a majority of my academic year. But, you know, I worked really hard to establish a life in Halifax. I had moved there three years ago, and I had such an incredible community. I really started to reframe this idea of moving for a boy instead of moving for myself. Um, You know, we're pressured as women to 
not throw away our lives, not throw away careers for a boy. Um, I certainly felt like I was doing myself a disservice if I were to move for someone. That couldn't be my sole reason. But I, I just found that the wrong way to look at it because it has turned out to be this incredible opportunity. I decided mid-July that I would move back to the States in September to save up. And then I joined him just recently last December. So I've been here about two months and it's been incredible. I guess the best chunk of advice about this whole situation that I received from all of my rad femme friends were, you know, do it, take this opportunity, this is incredible. Best case scenario, you love your partner, you live abroad. Worst case scenario, you're in New Zealand. And they were absolutely right. It's been such a ride. Two years ago? Yeah, two years ago, through a mutual fag hack. (laughs) (laughs) We're two queer men. We're roommates. That's like how we like got to know each other, like outside of our mutual friend when we lived together. Obviously, on one hand, like the fact that we are both queer is like part of our bond, mm. but it's like not really essential to it or something. Yeah. Like yeah. it's like obviously it means that we have like a lot of shared experience mm-hmm. and it means that we have like similar... Like common ground. Yeah. Because I feel like even in conversations about sort of like love or like romantic things even though like in theory those conversations should be universal there is like something like particular about like the queer experience Mm -hmm. that's kind of different yeah and i feel like because having a lot of female friends i feel like you're potentially like my first male best friend since like i was a child definitely I went through, like, a friendship exodus. Yeah. When I was in, like, grade two. Yeah. Where I just suddenly was, like, not friends with any men. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. like, and then had no friends for a year and then was, like, friends with only females. Yeah, I know that happened for me in middle school. When just, I, like, like, so funny. Yeah, it was, like, I had male best friends, like, up until then. Like, that was, all my best friends were male. And then suddenly I just had, like, all these female friends and, like, I just didn't know how to talk to straight men. Or oh. guys in general. Like, yeah, I still <laughs> hardly do. It is also, I feel like, about navigating kind of male comfort. Mm. Because at least personally, like, there's anxieties for me interacting with straight men because I just feel like we're on different pages. Like, they kind of Mm. seem to have this weird distance or kind Mm -hmm. of awkwardness. And then I'm trying to, like, accommodate that and, like, be more, like, mask than I actually am. Mm -hmm. And then even with, like, gay men that I'm not super close with, Mm -hmm. there's this need to, like, assert my lack of attractiveness to yeah. them, like for both of us. And so it creates this weird animosity where you're like, I actually would like to be friends with you, but I can't be too friendly because otherwise... I don't want it to be perceived as like interest. Whereas like, I feel like those, like both of those issues just like totally dissolve mm-hmm. in our friendship. Yeah, yeah definitely. Aww. Yeah, it's so valuable, I feel like. Especially like living with you too, like being able to like come home and like know that like the two female roommates that we have right now I get, like, relationships with men and, like, understand perspectives about, like, straight men that I, like, kind of don't get, Mm -hmm. but then, like, also having your perspective about, like, other gay or queer men that, Mm -hmm. like, I feel, like, really, like, affirmed and, like, validated in, like, Mm -hmm. my experiences, because I feel like in high school, having crushes on guys, all of my, like, um, female friends, like, obviously there was, like, a rapport because they, some of them were interested in men, Mm. but it was just, like, different, like, I didn't know that many gay men, like, it was just, 
it was like something sort of outside myself but I feel like being friends with you and like now sort of having like more male like connections like mm-hmm. I feel like that's given me the comfort to like explore like friendships with other men mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of I mean I don't know how many male friends yeah. <laughs> on my desk at home various knickknacks sort of describe in a scattered and flimsily constructed way my childhood reminders of my earlier years and its gradual close all placed there with purpose these memento mores of youth that I just can't seem to let go of. Journals, receipts, hair clips in a hand-painted box, a baby blanket, or what's left of it. But what stands out in this cluster of sentiments is the plushies. I'm a firm believer that everyone has had their first love, their first real and passionate love, a deep and obsessive, sometimes frightening love with a stuffed animal. Admittedly, I'd been through a number of different partners, as polyamorous at times. Teddy, my first love, the cliche romantic drama, meeting at birth and then breaking up due to a conflict of interest. The introduction to Polly Pockets. Teddy was a circus teddy bear. Not really my type looking back on it, but they made me feel real. Teddy made me feel things, and I sometimes wonder if they think of me too. Next was Monchichi. A Japanese-made baby-monkey-human hybrid equipped with a bottle-sucking thumb and cotton bib. I'm sorry I treated you so badly. Let your fur mat and your plastic black nose rub raw. Sometimes you hurt the ones you love. Our trip to Europe was amazing. You did ruin every picture, though. I held you up in every family photo. My most recent lover is a pretty sizable stuffed penguin. The one from DreamWorks Madagascar. But if you ask me if it's the boss penguin from this flick, I will deny it. They are more than that, and their character runs deeper than that. They came into my life late childhood. Penguini is their name, but Poog for short. Followed me through early pubescence. However, we had a falling out at that time. Our relationship was complicated. I loved them deeply, but was embarrassed that every night I had to have a plush body in my bed. I had a hard time sleeping alone, but knew that as I started to grow armpit hair that I needed to have independence. Fast forward to the end of high school. Paguini and I have nursed our diminishing flame. I began to realize that they have been through it all by my side. Poog has absorbed more drool and tears than I would like to admit. Poog was there when I got my period and didn't tell my mom. They kept my secret. Poog has been there when my human partner of many years broke up with me over Skype. Poog was there when I lost my virginity, when I was rejected. Poog has seen all these partners come in and out of my life, but never judges me for it. I sometimes wish they would let me know which ones are good for me, but Poog will always stay. I have been since in and out of human love, but for you I stay constant. To Poog, my realist love, love that is soft, supporting, warm, Living in Halifax, I've learned about the real beauty and importance of palship and how it can be the most fulfilling relationship and that relationships don't need to be sexualized and romantic to be ultimate companionship and support systems and care. I learned this especially through my dear, dear pal, and I am incredibly grateful for this relationship. Um, it's a relationship that has led me to really understand that 
friendship can be um, fulfilling and beautiful in ways that I didn't know it could be because I was always taught that that had to come from a romantic or sexual relationship to be that cared for. And it's taught me that you can be that vulnerable with your friends. We took a class together where we were too nervous to speak to each other, so we never spoke, but Chris was bold enough to add me on Facebook and send me a message asking me out on a friend date, which I encourage more people to do. And ever since then, we've been spending most of our time together, and uh, now we live together with two rad femmes. And um, yeah, and I've really learned about what a support system friends can be, be it cooking for each other or really checking in and understanding each other's emotions because of spending this much time together. If it's even that more physical side of just needing to be held, um, Chris and I most of the time share a bed or sometimes even a bathtub. And this friendship um, has been everything for me in terms of being able to take care of myself and really have that love in my life without needing to have a romantic or a sexual partner all the time and having something really consistent. And I think there's also something really radical about queer, trans, LGBTQIA plus folks showing each other that sort of love and um, getting to reflect that love towards each other as Chris and I get to do as two queer folks just figuring it out and um, reminding each other that we deserve to be loved. I woke up in a man's bed a little while back, quite scared. Not because I was in any perceived danger. I was more so scared of myself. I realized I didn't feel comfortable with him, though I had been talking on and off with this guy online for over a year. Without the screen between us, I realized I wasn't sure of the attraction anymore. I didn't know what I was looking for, nor did I enjoy looking for it. Without the crutch of my online persona, the quirky, well-lit selfie next to every well-thought-out thing I had to say, the barriers between myself and my sexuality no longer existed. I didn't like it. I hurried out, making up an excuse about somewhere I had to be, wondering why I started talking with him in the first place. I thought of the conversations we had. They were mostly alongside other conversations with boys on the same online forums. I couldn't pinpoint one certain thing we shared or talked about, but rather thought of a continuing dialogue of all the boys online I have shared things with. I wondered what this meant. Was I flirting with them or my phone? I never came out to my mother, someone who I am very close with, someone who I share everything else with. Recently, she asked why I never talk about my romantic life. I didn't know the answer. While coming of age, there wasn't anybody around who I felt I could experiment with. I turned to the internet to express the side of my life that I felt held back. I sexted with experienced boys from big cities, shared cute, caring thoughts with boys from small towns. I felt fulfilled. I felt I was doing what was best for myself. Until recently. Now I need a few drinks to help let my barriers down if I plan on sharing my offline persona with people. And it makes me wonder, will I always need the screen to have a relationship? This is things people have said to me about having a Palestinian boyfriend. Are your parents okay with that? The short answer is yes, and so is the long answer. They're more than okay with it, and I've spent time with him on multiple occasions. I guess the only thing I can say about that is when we initially started dating and I didn't think things were working out, I call my mom really frustrated. Describing him, she interrupted me and was like, what is he, Palestinian? And I said yes, and she kind of sighed and said something like, oh honey, you're trying too hard. I guess she had this idea that a nice Jewish boy would have been easier to weed out from the university scene, which I don't think is necessarily true. I thought being asked if my parents were okay with dating a Palestinian was insane, but I guess what I think is normal compared to what other people think is a bit different. I was recently at a family wedding, and I was shoved next to this guy who walks his dogs with the father of the groom 
and we were like third cousins with the wedding party, and I guess they just didn't know where to put us. He starts talking to me, and he asks if I have a boyfriend, and I just say no to simplify things. And as the night goes on, he gets a few more drinks in him and tells me if he found the bartender, and he asked if he was Jewish, and he could set us up, and I politely decline. And then later, he asked me if my school was, quote, very anti-Semitic, and if there were, quote, lots of Arabs, and I can't describe just how sickening that is to be in a situation where someone can make a flippant comment like that and assume that's normal, as if I wouldn't have maybe brought my Palestinian boyfriend to that wedding if he could have come. The second thing is, don't tell your grandma. I love my grandma, but like so many grandparents, she says very questionable things sometimes. She once sent me an email to go to a pro-Israel festival in New Orleans of all places, and I was like, Grandma, this has to be a cult or a trap orchestrated by Christian fundamentalists that support Israel only because they think it'll bring the Messiah faster. I should also mention that I have a half-Palestinian cousin. I took my grandma out to lunch and was asking her what she thought about my cousin Jennifer having a baby unmarried with Khalid, a Christian Palestinian from East Jerusalem. She's surprisingly ambivalent about it. He's from, what's that country next to Israel that gives us so much trouble, she asked. I thought the fact that she called Palestine a country was somewhat progressive. Number three is, your relationship is so cool and rad. I like to think that there's nothing radical about my relationship, really, because that kind of implies that Jews and Arabs have fundamental political differences, like a guy who once literally asked me if the Jews and Arabs were in a war. However, dating someone who comes from a radically different cultural background always has its challenges. But he makes me super proud, and at the end of the day, he's the best guy I know. Above all, something I've heard multiple times is a variation of, "Oh, you guys are going to make peace in the Middle East, you're so cute. This is just fundamentally untrue and really not that cute. So if you meet a Jewish-Palestinian couple, don't say that. When I was in my fourth year of university, I matched with this very handsome guy on Tinder. And we started talking and went on a few dates. And then um, it had been a few weeks and he was staying over pretty regularly. And then at one point he stayed over like three nights in a row. And it was getting, you know, it was looking like we were going to be like he was going to be my boyfriend. And I was really excited because he was super handsome and had very strong thighs. And he was like a rock climber. Um, and he was very sweet. Uh, and then one morning we woke up and uh, made plans to see each other the day after. And then he left for school. Um, and then I literally didn't hear from him for probably two weeks. Um, and I messaged him a bunch in the meantime, being like, hey, like, what? <laughs> um, what's up? Or what? Uh, and he just totally ignored me. So three weeks pass after this, and I had, you know, messaged him a bunch of times. This is dumb. You're the worst. Goodbye. And then one day out of the blue, like a week after I had last contacted him, he just texted me saying, hey, what's up? <laughs> and I was like, are you joking right now? <laughs> we dated for like three weeks and then you disappeared for three weeks and you think it's okay to just text me, hey, what's up? Um, so I kind of told him that and he was like, oh, I don't know. I just got busy. <laughs> um... And so I kind of told him off. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I was so insensitive, I didn't even think. And I just had no idea, like, where his empathy was, because he'd clearly been receiving all my messages. I just decided I didn't want to speak to him again. But then over the next two months, he would text me and call me, like, all the time. Like, once a week he would just call me, and I wouldn't answer him. And I just, so bizarre. Then he ran away to uh, work at a rock climbing hostel in Laos. So that was that. Um, but it's okay because I ended up um, going back on Tinder after that experience and I met my first girlfriend um, because of it. Um, but still, that was the hardest I've ever been ghosted. But it's
Thank you so much to all our brilliant contributors. Whether you sent recordings or written stories, this episode wouldn't have happened without you. And thanks to all you folks for tuning in. That's it for our love and friendship episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. Our producers are Ali Graham and Maddie Haslam. Show Outreach is done by Carmela Farakbash. Thank you so much to all our brilliant contributors. Whether you sent recordings or written stories, this episode wouldn't have happened without you. And thanks to all you folks for tuning in. I'm Shia. And I'm Rebecca. And make sure to check out our next episode. We'll be speaking with marginalized voices who are creating their own safe art spaces in Halifax and beyond. 